I can't start without talking about the Super Bowl a little bit. I know some of you are very excited about today. I was reading through some Facebook posts and, and noticed that some people had posted some verses about the Super Bowl. A little bit disturbing. For those of you that could care less about football, uh, or couldn't care less, or could, could, one of the second one, couldn't care less. Yeah, if you could care less, that would be me. But um, the two teams playing are the Denver Broncos, and a Bronco is a horse, right? So they have these white horses as part of their logo. And the Seattle Seahawks, which I understand aren't even a real bird, but I, I don't, they're, they're birds uh, of some sort. Seattle Seahawks. And so someone posted um, Psalm 33:17, the war ho- horse is a false hope for salvation. <laughs> and by its great might, it cannot rescue. Huh. Okay, Isaiah 40:31, someone posted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And I can't help but thinking it's not the eagles. It's the Seahawks. If Philadelphia was in the the Super Bowl, that would be a little bit different. And so really, I think we need to look for where a white horse is mentioned in Scripture. If we're to be true to the teams. And in Revelation 19.11, we read, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. So see, go Denver. (laughs) No, yes, some people are about to throw things at me. Just a little, little fun with it. You know, we, we, all of those are obviously taken out of context. Um, We can't use scripture to support either team, um, even though some in some sports would try to do so. But today becomes an opportunity, an opportunity for us to be the body of Christ. But for some of you that are very competitive, and we have a few of those here, it's an opportunity of self-control, right? (laughs) An opportunity to sin or to not sin, depending on how we respond. Maybe it's an opportunity for anger or yelling or ungodliness in a variety of of ways. For some, for about half, it might be a, a... chance to show your godliness in distress and in loss. It's just a football game. (laughs) Some of you will throw things at me. But today in our text, we want to sort of take that same idea. How do we handle distress? How do we handle difficult times? But in reality, we, we laugh about the Super Bowl and in the end it is just a game. Tomorrow morning it really doesn't matter who won. But in the world we live in, we see a world that is ever increasingly falling into sin, don't we? You know, how many times have you thought, wow, it just seems like society is getting worse and worse every year? Anyone ever thought that? Yeah, most of the hands go up as you read the news each day and, and as you just hear about um, the state of affairs all around us. And it's easy to get discouraged. It's easy to get, give up. It's easy to think Satan is winning. And evil is winning. And so we come to a text today, and our title today is Cheer Up, It's Getting Worse. Just to give you a shot in the arm. And it's a text that doesn't necessarily have a lot of hope, but it it has a a couple of points that Paul is making to Timothy to try to help him understand the times and what is happening around him. And then he brings it back to our hope is in the Lord. And our hope is in His victory in the end. 
Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. Last week as we finished chapter 2, and remember in the original text there were no chapter breaks, and so, so Paul didn't end chapter 2 and say that's the end of chapter 2 and then start chapter 3. It's just all one letter. And today's text really is continuing the topic of what we talked about last week about becoming a noble vessel, a useful vessel. How do we become vessels that are useful to God in a noble way? And at the end of that, Paul started to talk about those that were opposing the false teachers and he challenged Timothy to be teaching them to be kind to them, but be, to be helping them come to a knowledge of the truth. This text this morning continues that thought with, with basically the idea of, but not everyone's going to listen to you. Not everyone's going to listen to you. So how do you be a noble vessel? How do we be, continue to be useful vessels for the king in a dark and decaying world? And that's what we come to, to verse 1. In verse 1, Paul starts, but understand this. And, and that means to, to realize this, to pay attention to this. And it's almost like he's, he's grabbing Timothy and putting his finger in his chest, saying, understand what I'm about to tell you. This is important. Ever do that to your kids? Nah. But understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. Thanks, Paul. Timothy's probably reading this thinking, I was sort of hoping for some more encouragement than that. In the last days, there will come times of difficulty. And point number one, as we think about how to be a noble vessel in a fallen dark world, be aware. Be aware. Things will get more difficult as evil nears its end. Things will get more difficult as evil nears its end. When he talks about last days there, a lot of images come to mind, right? We think of the rapture and the second coming of Christ. We need to understand how the term the last days is used in the New Testament. It's used of the entire period from Jesus Christ to His second coming. And so we are in the last days. Paul and Timothy were in the last days. So we have about 2,000 plus years of the last days so far. We don't know when that will end, but we know that at any time Christ can return. Amen? And, and we're looking forward to that. The several songs this morning were about Christ's return and that there will be an end because the King is coming. And so when Timothy reads this, he's not thinking of some far off distant period of time. He knows he is in the last days. And the entire church age, this entire time, is part of the last days. But it's a time that Paul says we'll have difficulty. And that is actually a pretty dark word. It means terrible or violent. You know, one translation said stressful. That doesn't do it justice. You know, maybe having too busy of a schedule this week is stressful. This is terrible or violent. It's the same word that was used in Matthew when Jesus went to the, the Gadarenes and the two men came up that were, um, that were possessed by the demons. And it used this word to describe them. They were difficult or they were terrible. They were in anguish. Then Jesus cast those demons into the pigs and the pigs took a little swim off the cliff. And so Paul here is stressing to Timothy, be aware. This is no picnic. You are in a battle. And you need to be aware of a battle. 
Imagine taking a troop of soldiers and trying to prepare them for battle the next day and saying, you know what, we may not even see any enemies. They'll have, they'll have little um, slingshots instead of guns. But hey, go get them. And you get out there and they have guns and tanks. It's, we want to be prepared for battle. And so Paul is preparing Timothy for battle. Savage times are upon us. And it won't get any better. Look down to verse 13 in next week's section. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. See, Satan is waging war and he isn't stupid. And he will continue to press and press and press. And as he gets, it's, as he gets closer to the end and he knows that it's getting closer to the end, he will be like a cornered animal and he will strike back and he will fight back in any way he can to take as many people down with him. Not a lot of hope in that, is there? But one of the points of hope in this verse is that it's called the last days. What does the last days imply? That they end. That they end. That there is hope of our Lord's return. And so that's why in the point, things will get more difficult as evil nears its end. And so Paul is encouraging Timothy this is just a time. Just a period. You know, sometimes when I have a difficult thing, I'll say, well, I can do anything for an hour. I can do anything for an hour. I can do anything for a day. I can do anything for a week. A year? Huh. Now, but don't we think that? You know, if we, if we break it into bite-sized chunks, if we know it ends, we can go through anything. And so how do we be aware? How, how are we to be ready the first, what he's saying is don't be surprised by that. But he's also encouraging him, don't give up. It's a fight. Yes, it's going to get worse. That doesn't mean you're failing, Timothy. It doesn't mean the church is failing. It doesn't mean God is losing. Don't get discouraged. Keep going. You know, I heard lots of talk this week about the State of the Union address and, and all kinds of frustration with elements in that and where's our country going and how are we going to get better? God is still sovereign. God is still king. God still holds all authorities, whether saved or not saved, in His hand and has them there to accomplish His purposes. It just happens to be the last times. And things are getting worse. But that means the king is coming sooner. Don't give up. Don't get discouraged. The challenge in this is to fight harder. It's the fourth quarter, and we know who wins. So let's continue to fight for the winning team. Be aware, things will get more difficult as evil nears its end. We read on, and in verses 2 through 4, we have this list of 18 different sins. So get ready. Buckle up. Here we go. Let's, let's find out which one we each identify. No, no. <laughs> How do you go through a list like this? And so... I do want to talk through it. It's God's Word. But I want us to think about the purpose of this list and what Paul is trying to tell Timothy. Your next point in your notes is to be on guard. Check yourselves, maybe. Be on guard. Who you love defines how you live. Make sense? Who you love, where your heart is, defines how you live. Out of the heart flows the wellspring of life. And so, Paul here, when he comes to this, this section... Of, of sins is trying to get to the heart of the matter. 
And and the way you know that, look at verse 2. Look at where it starts. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money. And he's using a a word there. He's he's playing off love and this love of self. Go to the end of 4. Swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And he starts with the topic and ends with the topic. It forms an envelope around the entire list that is the purpose of the list. And so Paul here is saying these all come from loving yourself. They, these, the, the first one, and, and it's where he ends as well, is the defining item in the list. And that helps us understand the list. For people will be lovers of self. One note about people there. Keep in mind, who is he addressing or who is he talking to Timothy about? False teachers and false teaching in the church. In the other places where we have a list like this, in Romans 1 and 1 Timothy 1, it's talking about pagans. In this case, Paul is saying some of these people are in your midst. That's sobering. That's challenging. To be on guard, but not to go on a witch hunt and to start, okay, who's, who's going to be the most in this list in this room? Let's kick them out. No, the, the challenge here is, how do I treat this as a checklist for my own life? for areas that I may need to give some attention to and allow the Holy Spirit to convict and cleanse and purify so I will be a vessel for honor. So as we go through it, please don't start thinking of, well, so-and-so in the church is like this or so-and-so in the church is like this. Let the Holy Spirit start to convict each of us. Who in this room never struggles with self-centeredness? No hands. We all struggle with loving self. It's the sin that... We, well, we're, we're born with all sin. But man, don't you see that in kids from day one? A love of self. A protection of self. We never have to teach that. It's, it's, we're born with it. And so for us, let's watch ourselves. Let's use this as a checklist of ourselves. If we, if we think of this in a diagram and... He's comparing love of God, which we saw at the end of the list in 4, to love of self. And Paul is trying to to show Timothy what the results of each of these are. He's already talked about love of God at length and how to walk with God. So now he shows the other way. Where does love of self lead? What kind of life does it lead to? And that helps us understand this list. MacArthur calls... Um, this first point, love of self, the sewer out of which the rest of these ugly sins are discharged. Love that language. The sewer out of which the rest of these ugly sins are discharged. And so we, we want to go through this list with that in mind. Think of two things. What does the Holy Spirit want to convict me of on each of these items? But also put on your thinking caps. Try to get Paul's point here. How does this flow out of self-centeredness? How does self-centeredness lead to each one of these things? And in so doing, we're actually exposing light into our lives of how Satan wants to tempt, tempt and how Satan wants to work. And so we come to love of self and we go through these items in verse 2 through 4 and, and then verse 5 summarizes them, the result of them. People will be lovers of self and lovers of money. A little hard to read, but it's the same words that are, that are in the verse. Lovers of money. This springs out of love for self, doesn't it? Materialism says, I want more, so I deserve more, and I will get more. And these first four that we'll look at, 
And I've tried to group, the, group them into some categories. These first four really expand on what it means to be self-centered. So Paul starts by saying, lovers of self. Okay, here's four different ways that that shows itself internally in your life. And then he'll talk about how it applies to relationships and then how it, it works itself out in, in life and outward actions. So this first one is expanding on loving self. Lovers of money, proud. Some translations um, translate this boastful. And it's the idea of being full of big words. This is an outward state, whereas the next one, arrogant, is an inward state, are thoughts. So proud is how I talk about myself and things, whereas arrogance is how I think about myself. Paul hits both of them. Conceited, sometimes that's translated. Do I think I'm better than other people? Think about that for a minute. Because we'd all say, oh, I'm not those things. But do I think I have it more together than someone else in this room? Do I think that I'm somehow walking with God in a better way than everyone else in this room? Because where does that lead? If I have it together, then I get to impart my wisdom on you. I have something to offer you. Where in the end, we want to be looking to God's wisdom. We want to be looking to His Word. So we have the outward manifestations, the inward manifestations. Then that leads to abusive is the next word that he says. The idea is more scornful language, especially about others. If I think I'm better than others, how do I start to talk about them? I, I start to talk about them in really negative ways. Critical spirit would fall under this. Abusive. Because a critical spirit, when we criticize someone, again, it's saying, I have it together, you don't, and I'm here to impart my wisdom on you. These are challenging things, and I pray they step on our toes this morning. And so those four things are are an outgrowth of what it means to be self-centered or a self-lover. And then he comes to five different things that are dealing more with relationships, some of them in the family, some of them in the church family. But when we love ourselves, what effect does that have? The next one you might be surprised to find on the list. Disobedient to parents. We have this list of, of major sins and he puts disobedient to parents? Are you kidding me? And we so many times as a culture make light of this item. And we make light of kids disobeying their parents. Moms and dads, disobedience comes from a love of self. And if we don't stop it when they're young, it will morph into all of these other sins. It's that important. Teens, some of you are here, and some of you are like, you know, I'm I'm almost to adulthood. I have my own ideas. I want to live life. Has God not put you in the home that you're in? Has God not given you the parents you have? Has He not commanded you to obey them? And so when we start to think, or when you start to think, I somehow know better than my parents, it really comes down to a love of self, and it's a heinous lie from the devil. It's that important. Moms and dads, don't give up teaching your kids to obey. I know it's a daily struggle. We wake up and face it every day. And it seems like the kids draw straws sometimes to which one's going to challenge mom and dad today. Anyone else ever have that? Don't step down from the challenge. 
obedience is essential. And so this one I, I hear all the time is a surprise in the list. It's a surprise in the list because we've turned it into an acceptable sin and Satan is using it to destroy a culture. I'll get off my soapbox. The next one is just as surprising and I think just as important, ungrateful. See, do you see how these are starting to affect relationships? Disobedient to parents or authority, ungrateful to authority. This flows out of self-love because if I love myself and think highly of myself, then what do I deserve? More. Everything. I am, I am everything. I, I deserve everything. And if I deserve it, do I need to say thank you? I don't even have a sense of gratitude because gratitude is more than just the words thank you. It's this sense that I don't deserve this and I am so appreciative that someone has given this to me. And we complain. And we have a culture of complaining. Someone doesn't do exactly what we want at a store or a restaurant and we complain. And it's all coming from a love of self. Be grateful. Because Paul says to be ungrateful is a sin from the devil that is, that is bringing our society to ruin. Number eight, he goes on, unholy. And this is an interesting word because it can mean impure. But it also, in this context, in context, 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 when we're understanding what a word means... The Greek word also means disrespectful or irreverent, gross indecency. This word is, is sometimes, has elsewhere been used in scripture of someone that refused to bury a dead body or someone that committed incest. And so it's, it, it goes against common decency. And when we are full of ourselves, we start to only think of ourselves and those common decencies to those around us, we completely drop because we lose a respect for them. We lose a respect for each other. And in so doing, we lose a respect for God and we are not following His standard. And so we are unholy on both levels. He goes on then to use the word heartless. That may come up soon. Heartless. Let's try. There we go. And the idea of heartless is a lack of family love, a lack of normal love, without affection. I think of someone that is cold or inhuman. And so, you know, in a family, there's usually some affection, right? Parents with kids and, and brothers and sisters. Yes, there's fighting and bickering, and, and, and those are things that are all from love of self that we're working on. But there's this affection. Paul is saying here that this, this sin, heartless, comes when we start to lose that affection. And when we're full of ourselves, now we, we suddenly don't even care about those around us. One author said, utterly lacking in normal human affections. And we say that, that person has no heart. And that's what we mean. But it flows from a love of self. And in this grouping, how that applies to our relationships with others. We need to be on guard for that. It's easy to become callous. It's easy to become callous to certain people or certain things, especially if someone has hurt us. And that really gets into the next one, unappeasable. Unappeasable. 
Some of your translations um, translate that unforgiving. Think about that. When we become unforgiving, when we refuse to reconcile with someone, maybe because we're in the right and they just haven't paid enough. I've heard that. But when we refuse to, to offer forgiveness and extend forgiveness, that's because we are loving self more than we are loving God. Because God says, as I have forgiven you, forgive each other. Be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. Have you been forgiven by God? Do you want to spit in His face and not forgive someone else? Do you see how these all flow from love of self over love of God? And Paul's describing a people, he's describing a culture, and how a culture declines in the end times. Because love of self progressively leads to these. Instead of these five things, there should be obedience, gratitude, respect, affection, and reasonableness. In the next six, we get to some of the outward expressions of of self-love and self-centeredness. As it festers, as it grows, how does it then affect all of our outward activities? The heart always affects our actions. And so we come to slanderous. Slanderous. Spreading rumors. Malicious talk. I, I love the Greek word here. It's the same Greek word that we have for, the same root Greek word as we have for devil. And he's saying basically they're little devils in how they talk about each other and the maliciousness and the slander. And, and when we are wronged and when we allow that to fester, when we, when we love ourselves and we won't forgive and we, we, we won't seek to reconcile, it comes to slander, malicious talk, and not just toward that person, usually as an attitude that pervades all of our speech. Paul goes on to say then, without self-control. They indulge their passions. Hey, if I'm all there is, and I want to do it, why not? And it's no longer even the question of, am I hurting anyone else? I don't care about anyone else. So that doesn't even matter. Do I want it? I'm going to have it. Does that describe culture today? If I want it, I'm going to have it. Don't you dare stop me, because that would be wrong. And that's the common world view of our day, is give me what I want, don't get in my way. You need to be tolerant to me, but I don't need to be tolerant to you. Brutal. It's the next one. Savage. Resorting to violence. Untamed. And violence doesn't always have to be physical. We can be brutal to people without ever laying a, f a finger on them. Cruel might be another word for this. Not loving good or haters of good. They flip things around where right is now wrong and wrong is now right. And that comes from elevating self as our standard and a love for self over the moral absolute truth of God Almighty. Treacherous. 
The idea behind this word has the, the sense of betrayal. Being ready to betray. Now some of you accuse me of being treacherous when we play Risk. <laughs> it's a game. It's different. <laughs> At some point you have to betray and wipe out the other person. <laughs> but out of a love for self comes that mindset in life. Because now what defines whether or not I betray someone? If I'm a lover of self, what defines, how do I decide whether to betray someone? What do I get out of it? And so as soon as there's something I can get out of it, they were willing to betray someone. And most of us would say, I will never get to that point. But think about that in your, in your, your friendships. Think about that in how you speak to people. Do we have elements of this in our interactions with people? Where what I want is more important than they, than they are as a person. As someone made in the image of God. Finally, the last one in this, this section is reckless or rash. And it's interesting because the first four are more states of being or, or things that, um, happen and just come out of us. These last two, treacherous and reckless, the wording's a little different in that it's something we actively seek. And that's the end of the story of self-love, is it eventually destroys and brings us to a place where we are treacherous, betrayers, reckless and rash, because we are the only thing that matters. Encouraging list this morning, right? Thanks, Pastor Ron. You made my Sunday morning. Challenging list. For me, it was just so interesting all week to think through how these flow out of a love for self. A love for self that we think is, is pretty innocuous. Ah, so I love self. It's taught in our schools. It's taught in our counseling, our secular counseling of this age. People just need to love themselves more. That will help them get over all their problems. Does that look like getting over our problems? That's where it leads according to God Almighty. That's why Paul is sharing this with Timothy and saying, be on guard. The two come back to the beginning, the last two. And, and he's really coming full circle and these are the two that, that help us know the center point of his argument here. Swollen with conceit or self-importance. And then finally, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God controlled by the thrill of pleasure. And in fact, they usually need more and more pleasure because pleasure only satisfies for so long. And we have to have it in increasing amounts to be satisfied. And they love pleasure rather than a love for God. And so the, the battle at the beginning, love of self or love of God, by the time we get to the end of circle, the circle, even pleasure has, has supplanted God. But for the grace of God, go I. It's that serious. Just one thought. Remember that the light shines brightest in the darkness. This paints a dark picture of where our world is at and where it will go until the return of Christ. The darker it is, the easier it is to see a light.
Some of you have been with me on the college camping trip, and we've explored various dark places that are completely safe. <laughs> and there is no light whatsoever. And it's amazing how one little headlamp can light up the entire place. <laughs> right? You take that same headlamp outside, you, light, you turn it on, you can't even tell whether it's on or not. This is actually a, a great opportunity to shine brightly for the king. Go on to verse 5. Last statement sums it up spiritually. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. And understand, he's talking about people within the church. He's talking about false teachers who were saying, I am spiritual. In fact, I'm a leader. You should listen to me. And this is the description of their life. It's disgusting. And so they have this appearance of godliness, but they deny its power or they don't have the power in their lives of a walk with God. They don't have the Holy Spirit empowering them to live for God because it's not true and they are not saved. Appearance here means to be a shell of, like a silhouette. And they are godly in appearance only. We know from past verses that they were arguing over words and vain discussions and genealogies and they were practicing asceticism and denying themselves to look more spiritual. And they were leading people astray. And if I had to summarize this verse, it would be religion. And how religion is thought of today. Now religion can mean good things, but how it's usually used today is of the external trappings of Christianity or any other religion and sometimes devoid of the heart or just not even thinking about the heart. And remember, religious does not equal righteous. Religious does not equal righteous. Who do you love? This is not a new theme in the New Testament. Jesus, when He's talking to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees! You're hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. It's this chart. On the outside, they want to look spiritual. On the inside, self-indulgence. He goes on, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and are in all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. That is a condemning statement. And Paul is applying it to every one of us if we go down this path, if we don't check our love for self. In Jude 18, we read the same thing. They said to you, in the last time, Get to, the, to this point of the last times again, the point between Jesus and His second coming. In the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. Love of self. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But, but, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. It's this battle again. Love of self and love of God. Keep yourselves in the love of God. That's how we combat this. Who do I love? 
waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. That's the heart of the passage this morning. Verses 6 into 5, all the way through the rest, give a couple of, of illustrations of that and outcomes. Point number three, avoid. And this is probably the hardest point this morning. Avoid. Do not allow these people to be a close part of your life. They will drag others down. They will drag you down. Do not allow these people to be a close part of your life. They will drag others down. We cannot ignore the end of verse 5. Avoid such people. It's direct. It's specific. It means to turn away from them. To not be part of their lives. To not listen to them. To not give them a voice in your life. Now we know from verse 24 in the chapter prior that he's not in this case meaning cut all contact with them because he's told them to be kind and to teach them and to gently instruct them. But that's the purpose of the interaction. It's not to listen to them. It's not to, to develop deep, deep relationships with them. Avoid such people. So much trouble in our families and in the church would be resolved if we obeyed that instruction in God's Word. So much heartache would be removed. Over the years, I have, I have agonized and wept with parents over their children. And often it has come back to what kinds of people were in their lives. What kinds of voices were in their lives. Because the, the disease of self-love is one of the most contagious diseases that you will ever find. Because if I'm around someone that is loving self, then I have to start doing the same thing just to grab something of my own. And it spreads like wildfire and it destroys. And so Paul is saying to Timothy, don't even give them a place in your life. Avoid the discussions. Avoid the arguments. And we've seen that throughout First and Second Timothy. And in verse 6 and 7, we see what they do. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened by sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Those people, if allowed to continue, are trapping and sucking other people in. In this case, like we've talked about, it's some of the women that were alone and so needy for attention and, and they just open their doors and they just soak it all in. Oh, these people know what they're talking about. And in verse 6 and 7, each of those descriptions is a description of the women that were, de- were, that were deceived, burdened with sins. Their sins in their past are, are, are so weighing on them that they haven't gotten God's forgiveness and they haven't acknowledged God's forgiveness And so it allows them to be open to false teaching and other options. Led astray by various passions. Verse 7, along with the description in verse 5 of of the outward religious state and the inward um, decimated state, verse 7 says, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. They were soaking in information. More, more, more. Teach me more, more, more. But they never got to a point of acknowledging the truth, which means application, which means putting it into practice. And Paul here is saying, you know what? 
It's got to be put into practice for it to be acknowledged, for it to be truth. There are people that are going to hell that know more about the Bible than I do. That head knowledge got them nowhere. It's a repentance and an acknowledging and a desperation to have a love for God and apply His Word that God is looking for. Now, I'm not saying knowledge is bad. Knowledge is great. Learning is good. We've talked about that many times. If we don't know what we believe, it's really hard to defend it and stand on it. But head knowledge is not enough. God wants a people that put it into practice. That their first love is God and God alone. This would be like if we had a a terrorism intelligence committee and they're gathering information and they identify a terrorist cell and an upcoming attack and they do nothing. It's ridiculous. But that's the same thing with us if we just keep soaking in teaching and reading all we can and we never stop to apply it and make sure that it has gotten to be part of our lives. I pray that we are not just a knowledgeable church, but we are a practicing church. It's why we do things like study Acts 4 and then have an Acts 4 ministry to put it into practice. Because without the second half of it, we're weak-willed people that can be led astray by whatever the latest new book is. I'm challenged by this. I'm challenged with the idea that my sin can affect others. That my self-love will be contagious. Avoid. Do not allow these people to be a close part of your life. And that may seem heartless. But you can love them and pray for them and focus on teaching truth without opening your heart to them. Finally, number 4, verses 8 and 9. A little bit of hope at the end. Take heart. It's a battle, but evil will be exposed and defeated. Take heart. It's a battle, but evil will be exposed and defeated. Verse 8 reads, Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. These were two men that, according to Jewish tradition, it's not they aren't mentioned in the Old Testament, but Jewish tradition and, and other writings have them as two of the magicians in Pharaoh's court. Remember when, when Moses came into Pharaoh and said, let my people go, and for instance, one of the things he did is he took a staff, threw it on the ground, and what did it become? Snake. Magicians there, what do they do? Throw theirs on the ground, snake. And then and, and God has such a great sense of humor. What happens? Moses' the snake goes and swallows all the other snakes. <laughs> then it turns back into a staff. That's awesome. But that's a little bit of the imagery here that that is being brought up is just as those people who opposed Moses, who was trying to bring Pharaoh to a knowledge of the truth, and they were actively against it, he's saying, so are these men. They're corrupted in mind. They're disqualified regarding the faith. But, in verse 9, and we end with this, but they will not get very far. They will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Did those two men learn the truth? Yeah. Took ten plagues and a loss of a lot of lives, but they learned the truth. 
In the same way, God hasn't lost. He will win. Sin and evil will be exposed and defeated. And that statement is the, the little glimpse of hope that we have out of this verse, these verses. Cheer up. It's getting worse. But that means God is coming sooner. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, I pray today that You would search and destroy any areas of self-love in our lives. That You would challenge us to be honest, to be serious, to be open before You and Your light and say, God, if there is any area where I have elevated self above You, please come in and destroy it and do whatever it takes for that to happen. May that be our hearts this morning. That we would be Your people on guard against where culture is going, being deceived by Satan, and lights in a dark world. We praise You for being sovereign God, the Almighty who has all things in His hand. In Jesus' precious name.